Hi there, and welcome back to Resist with Lloyd Christopher. I am your host, Lloyd Christopher. So today, this is episode number two of our Tenants' Rights series, uh, and we will be reading chapter two of the San Francisco Tenants' Union's Tenants' Rights Handbook, the 17th edition. Uh, this chapter is entitled Understanding Landlording. And in it, we will learn the various types of landlords um, and how, what their motives are and how they operate so that we have a better understanding of who we're dealing with and we can form stronger strategies for not being taken advantage of and getting our needs met as tenants renting their, from their properties. Um, this chapter will cover the different types of landlords, such as big landlords versus small landlords, uh, professional landlords versus amateurs, uh, absentees that live off-site versus the ones that live in the building somewhere, um, old-slash-long-term investor landlords versus new short-term speculator ownership, the ones that are just trying to flip it for a profit real fast. The other section of this chapter covers how the landlords make money. So this is important because a lot of times landlords try to play the victim role. They try to, oh, expenses, this, expenses, that. I'm having so much trouble making making ends meet. So I'm going to have to raise your rent because of this and that. You know, and it's really actually, we'll find out that they're making a killing off of their property, no matter what they tell you. Because rental income, which is huge, is not by far the only way that they're generating wealth from their property. Uh, There's something called equity, and we'll discuss that more in the chapter. Equity is like the value of the building, and equity increases over time. Um, So the longer they have the building, the more valuable and wealthy they get uh, due to something called appreciation and uh, also speculation. It'll cover more information about the rental income itself and then also tax advantages. I mean, were you aware that the federal government subsidizes the landlord class using money you paid in your tax um, so that they can make a killing off their property? We'll discuss that. We'll see exactly how that happens and how they are making a killing off of your rent check and their property. Um, so yeah, that's that's it. Um, plus, after that, I'll give you you know a little bit of update on my what's happening with me and my situation. Um, I got some news to share about that. So uh, stay tuned. After these messages, we will jump right in into Chapter Two: Understanding Landlording of Tenants' Rights Handbook by the San Francisco. All right, my beautiful people, so thanks for sticking around. We'll dive right into Chapter 2 of Understanding Landlording. So next to slavery, the landlord-tenant relationship is the most destructive and unjust institution ever developed by humans, except in rare instances where it is based among families, friends, or members of a particular community. The landlord-tenant relationship is an economic relationship. Landlord-tenant disputes arise from this economic relationship, which pits a landlord who wants to profit from her investment against a tenant who seeks to live peacefully in her home. The government encourages and empowers this unjust economic relationship by giving landlords billions of dollars in annual tax breaks and cash subsidies. Now, these government subsidies generally are paid for by imposing high taxes on the wages and salaries of the working and the tenant classes. 
Unfortunately, the American housing institution that has developed and been refined over the years is based on a single principle, profit to landlords and real estate speculators. No consideration is made for the well-being of the families who make the property their home or for the community in which they live. Even some non-profit housing developers are realizing they can make up shortfalls in their own budgets by managing and investing in the property they control in a manner similar to a profit-making real estate venture. So the system of providing housing and shelter in this country is in need of radical reform. We can see that when we go outside in almost any city around and just see tent after tent after tent. When there are pe- when there are like millions of, of homeless people sleeping in front of millions of unoccupied homes, there's something wrong. So um, the system of providing housing and shelter in this country is in need of radical reform. While recognizing the current reality, this handbook is written to deal with practical realities. Nevertheless, a basic appreciation of the legal and economic parameters of the landlord-tenant relationship is very useful to tenants to better confront and deal with their landlords and hopefully to encourage activism to abolish this terribly unjust and inhumane institution. So it's a good idea for tenants to understand the subtle differences between different types of landlords and how the landlords profit from people's homes. Landlording is a big money business, one that often provides an outsized profit in exchange for little actual work. An examination of the wealthy and powerful in this country reveals that the fortunes of many are based on land holdings and real estate speculation. Even progressive-minded people often fall into landlording as an investment deal they simply can't resist. There may be some good landlords, but we certainly know that there are horrendous ones. No matter how nice a person you think your landlord may be, the issues inherent in a landlord-tenant relationship are systemic, and problems are virtually certain to arise. Control of land has been the battleground, both literally and figuratively, in this country from the time it was settled by the Europeans who promptly evicted the natives. In this chapter, we examine the different characteristics of landlord types and how the current economic structure and tax laws benefit the property owners at the expense of the unpropertied class. Landlord Types All people, including tenants and landlords, are unique individuals with character strengths and flaws. Most tenants are willing to give their landlords some slack and the benefit of the doubt until they get screwed. Some tenants may live contentedly in their home for years under, um, until one day a continuing little annoyance simply becomes just too much. Others are primed from the get-go and refuse to let the landlord get away with anything at all. As a tenant who has decided to assert your rights, and good for you by the way, it is essential that you know as much as possible about your landlord's personal style and financial resources before charging into battle. There are some landlords who take personal pride in maintaining um, a quality building, and even some who value long-term tenants. These landlords will respond to your request immediately, and might even sincerely thank you for bringing the problem to their attention. There are other landlords, however, who may consider your request a personal attack and want to retaliate. Now, appreciating these differences in attitudes will help you prepare appropriate strategies to solve your problems. If possible, try to develop a personal relationship with the landlord or the manager. Uh, This may make it easier for you to get repairs done. Now, bear in mind, though, that such a relationship may turn against you if serious differences arise. Try to remember that landlording is a business and self-interest in business often overshadows friendships. When you first move in, talk with your neighbors. Uh, They may have information that can be helpful when dealing with the landlord, such as, where does your landlord live? Where does he work? How much other property does he own? Does the landlord seem to be willing to spend the money to make the needed repairs on the building? 
Does your landlord hire workers to care for the property or do it himself? Does he communicate with tenants in writing or through informal verbal conversations? Landlords are different and warrant different tactics. What follows are brief descriptions of these landlord types as we have experienced them as tenants and as tenant counselors. Big versus small. The more apartment buildings owned or managed by your landlord, the more likely you will be considered a faceless name. Tenants' needs usually are not important to a large landlord. A significant problem is that large property owners often have um, buffers between themselves and their tenants. Resident managers, property managers, and repair people will handle some problems and cause you others. If the manager has been authorized to act as the landlord's agent, the landlord is legally responsible for the manager's actions as well as the manager. Now, it's very important that you document your communications in writing with the people with whom you interact in connection with your tenancy. Mail your letters with a certificate of mailing, which is different from just being certified mail. Find out and record the names of the people with whom you are communicating and determine what authority they have in making decisions. Most of these buffers usually are agents of the landlord and have some authority. Although, you should not reply, I mean, you should not rely on the promises of the person who fixes the toilet that the owner will not try to pass on the cost of repairing it. If the landlord's property manager tells you the same thing, you should document it as a possible defense against a potential rent increase. Large landlords also have financial and legal advisors helping them to maximize profit. You may find yourself being nickeled and dimed to death as they use every opportunity for rent hikes, or you may find your teeth chattering as they wait until winter is almost over before turning on the heat in the building. Smaller landlords who only own a few units generally will not have such bureaucratic shields. More than likely, you will be dealing with the owner directly, and there should be fewer excuses when you need her attention to some problem with the property. On the other hand, Small landlords may be excessively defensive if you suggest that they are not quick enough with their repairs or otherwise criticize their business practices. Smaller landlords may be less likely to navigate the local rent laws for capital improvement increases, etc., but they may ignore basic laws protecting tenants since they firmly believe that no government can tell them what to do with their property. You definitely should not take the word of any landlord as the law regarding any landlord-tenant issue. Instead, seek advice from the Tenants' Union or the San Francisco Rent Board as to the truthfulness of their statements and legality of their actions. Professional versus Amateur To professional landlords, investing in housing is simply another business endeavor. Professional landlords often have extensive property holdings and renters are merely a source of income who provide them with a rate of return on their investment. They often do not consider the fact that their investment is someone's home. These professionals usually will have property managers running their day-to-day affairs. Professional landlords make investment decisions and do not often bother with the petty details of running their business. Cost efficiency is usually their paramount concern. Thus, they are more likely to make capital improvements to the building in order to upgrade the property and increase their rent profits. Evictions and rent increases are routine and systematic. These landlords know the rules and break them carefully. Treat such professionals in a business-like fashion. Be smart and stay alert. Now, not all professionals own huge buildings on Lower Knob Hill. In the 1980s, a new type of professional evolved. These are usually younger owners of a limited number of buildings. These landlords usually do not know all the ins and outs of milking their buildings for maximum profits, but they often are involved 
with property speculation and other get-richer-quicker schemes like trying to evict long-term tenants through the owner move-in in order to remove the building from rent control. Amateur landlords, in contrast, often are part-timers and usually own only one or a few buildings. They may rent their apartments out themselves and may make deals with prospective tenants or tenants. They are more likely to be emotional, take complaints as personal attacks, and take impulsive illegal actions such as lockouts and harassment. They sometimes make mistakes, both legal and financial, and often cut corners to save money. For example, many will try doing repairs themselves. Now, sometimes the problem is not getting the repairs done, it's getting it done right. Many amateur landlords are prone to some of the problems described in the absentee versus landlord-occupant following, following section. Absentee versus landlord-occupant. The absentee landlord is the type you rarely see, if ever. If your building is in excellent condition and the landlord never bothers your household, you may feel lucky to have only a post office box to which to send the monthly rent check. Hold back the rent, however, and you may quickly get the landlord on your doorstep demanding it. If your home is in decent shape, it probably is just as well that you have an absentee landlord as you can probably get away with minor violations of the lease. But you may find it a problem to get immediate attention to repair problems and may have to send registered letters or call in your own repair people. Owner-occupants are often the toughest landlords to deal with if the landlord-tenant relationship turns sour. The landlord is easily available um, if something needs to be repaired. Also, since most owner-occupants take pride in the building in which they live, the work often gets done quickly. Some owner-occupant landlords are always around, however, prying into your business, entering unannounced to quote-unquote visit you, and quote-unquote inspecting your living space. And these things can deteriorate very quickly if you get on an owner-occupant's bad side. We have seen outrageous conduct by owner-occupant landlords and urge you to use common sense in dealing with them. Old slash long-term investor versus new slash short-term speculator ownership. Okay, so the longer a landlord has owned the building, the less likely he may feel the need to evict tenants in order to raise the rent. Long-term landlords are more likely to have a positive cash flow, income exceeding expenses. The building's mortgage is usually paid off or the monthly mortgage payment is far less than the current monthly rental income. Thus, the monthly rental income stream is often pure profit. A stable, hassle-free tenant population is usually an important consideration for these landlords. They also may be less likely to put money back into the property, which ultimately will cause serious repair and maintenance issues. Many tenants will accept the trade-off between this deferred maintenance and continued low rents, however. Whenever a building is sold to a new landlord, there almost certainly will be problems for the tenants. For example, eviction attempts of long-term tenants who pay less than the market rents often are inevitable. The new landlords also may try to raise rents to help pay off their increased mortgage payments. Services may be reduced to save money or they may try to change the terms of the tenancy in order to assert their power or their personal wishes. Tenants should prepare themselves for these and other hassles when their building is put on the real estate speculation merry-go-round, but should be aware that the San Francisco Rent Ordinance provides significant protections for tenants, even when property changes hands. See the section Sale of the Building in Chapter 4, Renting Basics, for more information. Now, with a basic understanding of the types of people who shape the landlord class, Let's take a look at the financial side of being a landlord. This is the heart of what motivates a landlord's behavior and ensures large campaign contributions to those politicians who will continue the unjust landlord-tenant institution. How Landlords Make Money Most of the problems you will face as a tenant, will come down to money. 
the repairs that are not being made, the eviction that the landlord is threatening, or the exorbitant rent increases. All have one thing in common. The landlord says he does not have the money or wants more money. Never mind that the increased monthly rent means that tenants have less money for their children, food, medical care, or other necessities. The current market economy is a zero-sum game in which the landlord's goal is to increase his personal wealth, which, by definition, will come at the expense of the tenant's financial well-being. Your landlord may plead poverty and moan about his property tax bill that the tenant actually pays when he pays rent each month. But you can be sure that you will not meet the landlord when picking up your food stamps. The economic dynamic between landlords and tenants is not much different from that between bosses and workers. Landlords often will make it appear as if they are not making much profit from their building, when in fact they are making handsome profits. The landlord class makes a killing from owning real estate. Although this section of the handbook is not designed to be a thorough analysis of the economics of landlording, the subject is more complex than it than is possible to cover in this handbook, the following paragraphs offer a basic explanation of how landlords profit from their real estate investments. And as you will see, landlording generates large sums of money and wealth in many more ways besides your monthly rental check. There are four basic sources of wealth and income that a landlord receives from his rental property. 1. Equity in the building. 2. An, um, appreciation in the value of the property and speculation on its anticipated increase. 3. Income from rents and 4. Tax loopholes, write-offs, and tax shelters. One reason why property ownership and wealth in combination provide the landlord with a steady cash flow rental income, a sound and safe investment asset equity and potential appreciation, and tax shelters for reducing or eliminating otherwise taxable income, tax loopholes. We will begin our discussion with equity since an understanding of this concept is crucial to understanding how wealth flows to landlords. Equity. Now, equity is defined as the net value of the land that the landlord has in the building. For example, if the property is worth $500,000 and the bank has an outstanding mortgage of $200,000 on the building, the landlord has an equity value of $300,000. In many ways, his investment in the building is similar to other investments such as stocks or bonds. Landlords, like all investors, expect their investments to increase in value. This is not an unrealistic expectation considering the U.S. government plans for an inflation increase of 3-5% per year by managing increases in the nation's money supply. Now, studies often show that real estate investments perform better than other investments even in geographic areas where housing is not skyrocketing in value. In a city like San Francisco, where the cost of land is among the highest in the world, it is an especially lucrative investment. In other words, simply buying and holding onto property, whether it's a vacant lot or a 40-unit apartment building, is an investment which is far more stable than that of the stock market, and often brings the investor much greater returns. When the real estate market is appreciating, See the appreciation and speculation following section. R returns are magnified tremendously, even without considering the significant benefits from rental income and tax shelter advantages. Now, even if the real estate market is temporarily flat or falling, equity makes real estate a good investment option because the investor only needs a relatively small amount of money for a down payment. A bank puts up the vast majority of the investment, sometimes as much as 100% of the building's purchase price. The increase in the landlord's equity is created by the monthly rent checks paid by tenants. When a landlord buys property, he will typically make a down payment of 20% of its value. Now, this is called the initial equity. The remainder of the money comes from a bank or other financial institution. This loan is called the mortgage. 
the landlord pays installments on the mortgage until the loan is paid off. Rental income protects the bank and secures the original investment. After the landlord or tenant pays off the mortgage, the rental income becomes an additional source of profit. At any point in time, this initial equity down payment plus the part of the mortgage which has been paid off by the tenants plus any appreciation in the value of the property is the landlord's total equity in the property. Now, before the landlord pays off the mortgage and owns the property outright, he can use its equity in many ways. Because equity is considered part of net worth, the landlord can use the property as collateral for other loans. Real estate equity is almost always used by speculating landlords to build vast portfolios of real estate holdings while using very little of their own money. After acquiring one building, they can use the equity buildup in that building as collateral for additional loans to purchase more property, which can then be used as collateral for still more buildings and so on. Meanwhile, tenants pay their monthly rents, which in turn are used to pay the landlord's mortgage, property taxes, insurance, and building maintenance, and to keep the landlord's credit rating secure. Now, even if the landlord is not an aggressive property speculator and he does not use the equity in one property to leverage other purchases of property, a landlord can make a small down payment on a building and watch the equity grow as the mortgage is paid off by the tenants and the building appreciates in value over time. Appreciation and Speculation Ownership of a building enables speculation. From 1990 to 2005, the median sales price for a residential building in San Francisco increased approximately 300%, from just under 300000 to over 800000 This increase is known as appreciation, and it builds the equity value in the investment. Now remember, equity equals down payment plus mortgage paid plus appreciation. It is the equity buildup that enables landlords to make a killing by buying and selling buildings. The way the real estate market is today, even when a landlord does nothing to maintain or improve the building, it increases in value over time. The following is an example of how profit is made from appreciation. Assume that a landlord bought a four-unit building priced at a million dollars five years ago. Assume the landlord made a $100,000 down payment, took out a $900,000 mortgage, and resold the building five years later for $1.5 million. This is a fairly realistic example of the appreciation in the San Francisco housing market. The landlord's profit would be calculated as follows. You take the resale price of $1.5 million, and you minus the unpaid mortgage of $700,000, which gives you 800000 the proceeds from the sale. Now you minus the initial investment from that, which is of 100000 and that leaves you with the landlord's profit, $700,000. So let's look at this profit calculation in a slightly different way. The purchase price of the building was $1 million, and the resale price was $1.5. Is the landlord's profit a 50% increase? No. Remember, the landlord's initial investment was only 100000 The landlord's profit is a whopping 700% on his initial investment. This profit is further sweetened by another government subsidy that taxes the landlord's profit at favorable capital gains rates. Capital gains are subject to a 15% tax rate, while working people pay taxes in excess of 60%. When income taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, sales taxes, and other taxes are all added together. Furthermore, the profit is taxed only when the building is sold, even though the landlord has access to the equity before then, as banks will lend money on the increased value. By refinancing, borrowing money on the appreciation of the building, speculators can increase the buying power of their original small investment. This process is called pyramiding. Real estate empires have been built by borrowing money several times on the same property. Each time the property is refinanced, the tenants have to shoulder the cost of the higher mortgage and increased interest costs through pass-through of the costs to the tenant in their rent. 
Now the foregoing example is a perfect illustration of the lucrative field of speculation. Speculation occurs when a landlord or a real estate company buys up property, holds it for a short time, and then resells it for a much higher price. In the process, the owner might do some minor repairs to, or slap on a new coat of paint on the building to help raise the resale value, but generally, he will not invest much money into the upkeep of the building. Now, what speculators are counting on is that property and housing prices will continue to increase and that they can make huge profits without doing much work. Every time the building is refinanced, the mortgage payments increase, and the tenants are expected to bear the burden of the increases, even though the owner ultimately will be making huge profits. The cost of housing and rents continues to increase far beyond the original cost of the property, and we, the tenants and even homeowners, pay for it. This principle is nicely described in the book, How to Get Rich While You Sleep. Quote, it's nice to drive by the income property and know that these tenants are actually in there worrying about how to pay you the rent so you might make all your expenses, reduce your indebtedness, and build your estate. It's nice to be able to show your friends this property and say, even while I was asleep last night, that building over there, that was making me money and helping me build my estate. The reason that the practice of landlording and speculation continues to be very profitable very profitable business is that everyone needs a home. Most people cannot stop renting just because they think it's too expensive. Rental income. Rental income is the magic ingredient that builds equity by providing the cash flow. What you pay in rent becomes the landlord's gross income. What is left over after expenses is the landlord's net rental income. While it is a small part of the overall profit picture, rental income is important because the cash flow it provides makes everything else work. While a patient landlord can wait and reap the substantial benefits of equity, appreciation, tax advantages, and maybe speculation, rental income is one component of the picture that the landlord can manipulate directly and need not wait for time and market forces to provide the financial benefits. Thus, most landlords will watch their rental income very closely. For example, poor cash flow often results from a landlord's higher mortgage expenses because he just bought a building. Time will make the cash flow positive, but until it does, landlords will try to raise rents. In addition, Tenants will face difficulties in getting repairs done and long-term tenants are likely to face eviction attempts. As in any business, the landlord begins with a set of fixed and variable expenses. Fixed expenses will include the mortgage and the property taxes, and the varying expenses will be the building's operating costs such as maintenance. The fixed expenses account for 65-95% to 95 of the building's total expenses. Only a small amount is subject to inflation, which varies from year to year. For the variable costs, the landlord gets an additional break from San Francisco rent control laws, which enable him to increase rent up to 7% per year based on inflation. He may request additional increases to pay for capital improvements. See Chapter 7, Rent Increases. These capital improvements, which tenants pay for, allow the landlord to increase the monthly rent even though they significantly increase the equity of the building as well. As many landlords have discovered, this new profit strategy, the number of capital improvement cases, has increased dramatically. The total rent collected by the landlord is defined as gross income. The landlord deducts mortgage payments, property taxes, and money spent on maintenance or repair from the gross income. The money remaining is the landlord's cash flow. On top of this are the billions of dollars in tax subsidies given to landlords each year by the federal and state government in the form of phony depreciation deductions that landlords use to reduce their taxes on other income. See the discussion under the tax advantages following section. It is important to understand that this rental income is not the source of the landlord's profit or return on his investment. Rather, it is the money the landlord uses to pay off his investment. When a landlord pays bills, 
The first priority will be the mortgage payments. The second priority, property taxes. And the third priority, typically insurance and utility costs. These are the basic expenses that will keep the landlord's investment safe from foreclosure or disaster and will enable him to build equity and reap tax benefits. The very last priority for many landlords is maintenance and repairs. A landlord who is interested in making the highest profit and having maximum cash flow possible will make cuts in this area. Tax Advantages Another important financial consideration for landlords is the lucrative tax advantages that come with real estate ownership. Some of these tax benefits occur every year when landlords prepare their tax returns. Another one kicks in when a landlord sells a building. The former category includes a phony deduction called depreciation and other tax write-offs for expenses. The latter is for the favorable capital gains tax rate, which is a reduced tax rate that applies to property sales. Now, the concept of depreciation treats your home in the eyes of the tax laws as it treats other commercial business expenses. It assumes without any economic justification that the real estate is quote-unquote wearing out over time, similar to the same process that occurs with new industrial and business equipment. Even though the building actually is increasing tremendously in market value each year, as San Francisco real estate virtually is guaranteed to do, the tax laws allow a landlord to pretend that his real estate investment is decreasing in value. This theoretical decrease in value is treated as if it were an actual cash expense paid by the landlord. Thus, a landlord can deduct the depreciation value from his taxable income the same as if he made a charitable donation or paid the property tax bill. Even though depreciation only operates on a theoretical bookkeeping level that may warrant a discussion in a college accounting textbook, the government allows the landlord to treat it as an actual annual cash expense. Although the original builder of the housing deducted its full cost when it was built, nevertheless the government allows every rental building to be depreciated year after year. Each new owner is allowed to treat the building as if it were brand new housing and as the real estate continues to increase in value, the tax subsidies to landlords grow larger and larger. Think about that the next time you prepare your own tax return and ask yourself how many deductions the government lets you take to reduce your taxable income. Um, there are two formulas for calculating depreciation. There's the straight line and the accelerated. Using straight line depreciation, the landlord can spread the depreciation benefits equally over the building's useful life. For example, if a building is claimed to have a useful life of 25 years and its initial value is a million dollars, a landlord can deduct one twenty-fifth or $40,000 from his income tax each year as if he were losing money. Current tax rules allow the building write-offs over about 30 years. In the 1980s, the full cost of rental property could be deducted in as little as 19 years, even though many San Francisco buildings were over 100 years old and probably would still be standing another 100 years. Right here. This theoretical depreciation loss is used to shelter other income. Sheltered income can be from rent, from sales of other buildings, from other investment income, interest and dividends, or even from earned income from wages. This incredible government tax subsidy of depreciation is a primary reason why many buildings are owned by doctors, attorneys, or other persons in high-income occupations. Depreciation will shelter the person's regular taxable income as well as provide a sound investment that builds equity. Most wealthy individuals will have at least a portion of their investments in real estate because of these tax shelters. 
an indirect consequence for tenants besides having to pay higher taxes to subsidize these loopholes is that many federal and state legislators also have financial interests in real estate. Accordingly, it is difficult to get legislation passed that eliminates these tax subsidies. If these subsidies were eliminated, the cost of housing would decrease dramatically as speculators no longer would be competing with one another to bid up the price of housing. If the price of housing were reduced, rents would also be reduced substantially. More common and more outrageous than straight-line depreciation is accelerated depreciation. This works similar to the straight-line method described previously, but rather than equal depreciation deductions each year, the landlord receives larger depreciation deductions in the first years of ownership. This results in significantly greater deductions on the landlord's income tax return. In later years, the amount will be less, but by then the building often is sold. Obviously, this is a great tool for speculators and actually creates a financial incentive to buy and sell buildings quickly. After having milked the building for the bulk of its depreciation value, even though the building actually is increasing in value, the building can be sold at a profit. In addition, these phony depreciation deductions continue indefinitely. When an owner has depreciated a building and then sells it, the new owner can begin this depreciation game all over again at the higher purchase price. In this manner, the total depreciation on any building can add up to many, many, many more times than its original construction cost. Now, besides depreciation, landlords get other ongoing tax breaks from the federal and state governments, which are especially annoying because the San Francisco rent control laws allows rent increases for the very same items. If you get a capital improvement rent increase because your landlord finally painted the building, for example, your landlord not only gets the money from your increased rent checks to fix up the building, uh, he also can write off the costs of doing the work um, from his federal and state tax returns and receive a fat check from the government. This process is commonly known as double dipping. Landlords also can write off all of their operating expenses such as mortgage interest, property taxes, insurance, and all sorts of other items like travel costs, office and computer costs, telephone costs, etc. In other words, landlords are heavily subsidized by taxpayers in yet another form of welfare for the rich. Keep in mind that this landlord subsidy increases each year even as the renter's tax credit has been restricted to those of very low income and remains at the measly sum of $60. Government funding of affordable housing has virtually disappeared as well. If the amount of money the government spends on subsidizing landlords were spent to create housing, for example, society would have fewer problems with homelessness and tenants would pay far less of their income for rent. Building sales and speculation are important sources of landlord profit by themselves, but they are further sweetened because the profit is taxed at a special capital gains tax rate. As Ludicrous as it sounds, once a landlord has taken advantage of the myriad tax loopholes and tax shelters that apply to real estate, the government continues the subsidies by giving them a special tax rate. When a landlord sells a building, the profit is called capital gain. In a truly generous manner, the government tax rate on capital gains is generally less than one half the tax rate paid by working people on their wage and salary income. San Francisco landlords receive an additional benefit from the government because many major cities typically impose a transfer tax on property sales. The transfer tax rate in San Francisco is about one half of those typically found in other Bay Area cities. In a nutshell, many tax advantages are available to landlords. This discussion shows how easy it is for those millionaires you often read about in the newspaper to actually make a million dollars in cash, but to claim zero taxable income and to receive a tax refund courtesy of the government.
This section has provided a very brief explanation of how landlords make money. However, we would like to add that we have serious questions about the ethics of landlording as a career at all. Most people work every day and get paid only for the amount of time they are working. This is not the case with landlording. Landlords make money because people need housing. Our economic and political systems make it very easy for landlords to capitalize on that need by treating landlording as a business similar to selling widgets. Tenants have been reduced to mere components of a landlord's profit statement and are not treated as people in need of housing. All right, so that was chapter two, um, understanding landlording. And to kind of summarize um, and review of this chapter, we learned we learned that um, next to slavery, the landlord-tenant relationship is the most destructive and unjust institution ever developed by humans. Um, we learned the different landlord types which were big landlords versus small landlords, professional versus amateur, uh, absentee versus a landlord occupant that lives in the building with you, um, old slash long-term investors versus new slash short-term speculator ownership. Um, and we also, we also uh, learned how landlords make their money. You know, we learned that a lot of times landlords will um, will play a, play a role that and like a like a game and pretend that they're not making great profits off of their rental property, um, and it, they may seem kind of convincing sometimes. But what we have to take into consideration is that the rental income is only a small part of the wealth that's generated from owning property. Uh, landlords also have wealth building uh, qualities in their properties, such as equity, which is you know the, the value of the property, and it, um, appreciation and speculation, which is basically the fact that um, the the uh, the worth of the property is going to increase as time passes. Um, there, of course, is the rental income, which pro- pays down the landlord's mortgage and tax, you know, uh, building taxes and things, uh, and also pays for things like maintenance and other monthly expenses. And remember, once the mortgage is paid off, then nearly all of that rental income that comes in every month uh, is just pure profit for them. The other way that they make out um, is by tax advantages and loopholes. The government, the federal government, subsidizes landlords with taxes paid by the tenant class. Um, And subsidies and loopholes, they sure do get. They get the favorable capital gains tax rate, which means that they are taxed way less on their income from their property than we are for our income at Starbucks. So don't fall for their schemes. Um, It's great to know what type of landlord you're dealing with because that uh, will inform you on how to approach them when things need to get done um, and how to safeguard yourself from uh, from you know being taken advantage of now in chapter three coming up next uh, we will discuss uh, researching landlords buildings and laws and this is where it starts to get a little bit more technical um, citing court cases and documents and statutes and stuff but thankfully chapter three is rather small so it won't take long don't be scared just come back (coughs) next week and we will um we will delve into chapter three but in the meantime let me just say that um as far as my own situation goes uh well um we had i have a 
uh, an appointment today with the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. So last week I went to the the tenants um, union and as I was filling out the paperwork, I read um, that it said, if you're being evicted and you have paperwork, um, tell us immediately so that because we need to refer you somewhere else. Um, so I did that and they referred me to the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. Now, uh, it wasn't my first choice on on where to go because um, I live in the Mission, not the, not the Tenderloin, but apparently the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, if you're getting Ellis acted, is the place to go. Their lawyers there provide free counsel for specifically this type of eviction. And they're eager to help you if you have paperwork. You do need that paperwork to show that you are actually being evicted and qualify for their services. But if if you have that, they are eager to help you. They are at 126 Hyde Street, which is basically Hyde and Golden Gate in San Francisco. And they are the Tenderloin Housing Clinic at 126 Hyde Street. So if you're being Ellis acted, Tenderloin Housing Clinic, 126 Hyde Street. In the next episode, I'll let you know what happens today at, um, at my meeting with the lawyer. And, and I'll give you more information about that and what's going on with that. But um, thankfully, I'm finally coming out of the little depression that um, this whole thing had sent me into. It's messed up. It seems like when I was at the, um, when I was at the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, they, the receptionist lady was, who I was talking to told me that she's noticed that it seems like landlords all over the place love to serve people paperwork on holidays it's like we got our first one saying that the building was going up for sale we got that one pinned to our door on fucking new year's i mean christmas eve literally um this new one that says we have to be out of here by june they gave us that one on valentine's day i mean what is it with these people that you know okay it's you know they they don't have any empathy at all. I mean, shit, you know, okay, well, how can we make this even worse? Oh, yeah, let's evict them on a holiday. You know, oh, fuck you. So, um, we'll see what happens um, if our if my la- my roommate's interests conflict with mine or not. Um, really, I just don't want to be left in the dust. If they're going to take a, the buyout or whatever, they're going to fight it, then I'm down to fight. If they're going to take a buyout, I just don't want to be left without one, you know? You know what I mean? Because... Even $10,000 is not enough, by far, to find another place in this city. So, I just want to make sure I get taken care of, too. So, thank you for listening. Again, my name is and um, I will see you next time. Come back soon. Peace.